Hey, I'm Kate Bendewald. And I'm Leslie Myrick. For the last year, we've been chatting weekly to discuss the ins and outs, ups and downs of running our interior design businesses and decided to hit the record button. We're interior designers getting coffee with each other and now you. While some might choose to guard the hard-earned secrets of their design success, we've chosen to support, encourage, and empower one another to be the most kick-ass business owners possible. Welcome to the Designers Getting Coffee podcast, real talk about running your design business with head and heart. Come join the conversation. Hey, Kate. Hey, girl. This is it. This is our very first podcast episode. It's actually happening. It is. And you and I had this conversation like, I don't know, almost a year ago when we first met about how we started. And it's so cool to be kind of coming full circle, hitting the record button and sharing this, not just between us, but with all the other awesome designers that are hanging out with us. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is probably a whole podcast in and of itself, but I think there's a Um, cool story about what we've been doing over the last year, but I think in a nutshell, just to share with um, our listeners. So Leslie and I live in the same town. We're both interior designers and also really great friends. Our kids go to school together. Our families are friends. Um, And we had been getting coffee every Friday morning um, religiously over the past year just to discuss our businesses. We kind of mentioned that in the intro. Um, And this is very literally us just hitting the record button, but with a little bit of... uh, a little bit more setup involved than our typical Friday conversations, but um, I think you can expect a pretty unfiltered dialogue between the two of us. Yeah, we realized a few months in after getting together for our Friday, we should call them business buddies coffee sessions, that there were a lot of other people that are probably in a similar boat as designers who are on their own, running their own firms, looking for community, looking for someone to support them, and if it's anything like the town we are, sort of the, the old school designers are not as interested in collaborating in community, in relationships. And I found it pretty lonely before my good buddy Kate moved here and we found each other by stalking each other on the internet. <laughs> so we're so grateful to be here together Without to have you know, gleaned wisdom in our few years that we've each been running our own design firms. And we just can't wait to share with you what we talk about over coffee every Friday. Awesome. Yeah. There'll be more on that, I think, coming up. So, Leslie, why don't you start? I want to hear from you. And I mean, I know a little bit of how you kind of got started, but how did you know that you were really ready to take that leap to start your own business, that is? It's one of those things that, you know, looking back when I was younger, I didn't think I had the entrepreneurial bug, but now... (laughs) Looking back on when I was younger, I mean, my friend and I had a leaf raking business when we were 12 and I used to babysit and I can remember buying, this is going to age me, Sailor Moon stickers at the store for 10 cents and I would bring them to school and sell them for 25. (laughs) So I think I maybe had this idea of running a business from, for a long time. But even more than that, I've always known that it was going to be a design business I was that kid who was moving my furniture around when I was five and asking my dad for help because I couldn't push the bookshelf by myself. I tried, but you know, needed to get some muscle behind my little five-year-old self. But having a bedroom that felt good to me as a kid and as a teenager was always something that really mattered. I loved rearranging my furniture. 
decorating my walls, painting, you know, buying accessories, playing around with it. And it was one of those things that I've known since I was little that I just wanted to, as I used to say, make people's houses pretty. And I don't know, I don't think I understood as a kid what exactly that entailed and how that actually feels or what it actually means to have a home that supports you, that feels good. But I know it a lot more now as an adult. So it took me about 10 years working in the design industry before I had the uh, lady balls to go out on my own. I wish I had done it sooner, but I know I wasn't ready. I do think work experience for someone else was incredibly valuable. And I think, Kate, you had that as well before you launched on your own too. And I'd love to get into more of the nitty gritty of how I officially went on my own, but that's kind of the, the nutshell story. Went to school for design, always loved it, worked for 10 years, got really fed up working for other people and pulled the trigger on launching my own firm three and a half years ago. Nice. What were, what were some of your work experiences before between design school and being your own boss? I had a few different experiences, mostly related to interior design. I got hired right out of college. I did a co-op and then got hired by um, a fairly well-known designer in Toronto who also has a podcast that I've been on. And that was great experience in that it was a small firm, not a lot of hand-holding, and it was straight up trial by fire, hit the ground running, you got to figure this ish out or you're not going to keep up here. Right. I had a very similar experience. <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's hard at the time when you're 21 and you're like, I'm so young and I feel like I'm, you know, trying to be a grown up and figure out the post-college world. But I think that was one of the most valuable experiences I could have had was being thrown in the deep end and, you know, not just a CAD monkey that I think a lot of people are when they go to larger firms, but getting exposure to all facets of design from, you know, right after the initial consultation, through sourcing, through, you know, specifying, quoting, ordering, managing, installing, all of that. So I feel really fortunate that was my experience at a young age. Uh, it did come with a price and that price was burnout. <laughs> so I only lasted yeah. about a year and a half in that role. And then I transitioned to working at a couture drapery workroom. And it was also in the same building, same, same big open showroom as a trim and fabric, a trade-only trim and fabric showroom. So it was kind of interesting going from the interior design side to the behind the scenes, working with one of our trades, learning more about fabrics and trims and that kind of stuff. So still in the industry, but not actively designing for clients. After that, this was a super fun six-month stint working retail at a furniture store. <laughs> and I was terrible because there was opportunity to make commission. <laughs> I really was. And our, the furniture was garbage. I did not stand behind it. I knew the quality wasn't there. And people would come in looking for something, and I would literally send them to other stores in the city. This was in Toronto. <laughs> Because I knew all the design resources and I knew where they were going to get the right people. Like, you don't want this crap. No, I would literally say, I'm like, trust me, like, don't buy the sofa. You're going to want to talk to Bobo downtown at this store. And I would, I would send clients away. But Leslie, I think that, um, I think there's a good story there that um, tells people and, you know, even your clients and the people listening that there's an honesty and a trusting, a trustworthiness there that even if you're paid to sell something, if you don't stand behind it, you just can't. And so, um, this, I'm not to get off on a, 
on a tangent, but our experience this weekend in the Vegas market really opened my eyes to see, you know, there's a lot of junk out there. There's a lot of great high quality stuff too, but um, it makes me stand more firm in my sourcing for clients um, that they can trust me because I've had that experience and, and you've had it too in that retail world. So sorry to interrupt, but go on. No, I agree. That's a really great point. And I think even though at the time it bit me in the butt because I didn't make commission, <laughs> didn't make very much money working there. It is just one of those core values of mine that I need to stand behind what I do and how I do it. And I'm not going to sell a client something to make a dollar. I, it doesn't feel good. You know, we work hard, like you were saying, Kate, in, we just got back from Las Vegas market. I've been to High Point. We work hard to hit the ground running, to check out things, to butt test, to check the quality and to know that what we're doing and what we're selling is in integrity with who we are as people and as business owners. So all that to say, I sucked working at a crappy furniture store. <laughs> so if anyone else has been there, I understand because yeah. it just, it feels icky to, to sell a product that you don't believe in. Right. So was that about the time that you started, your wheel started turning and thinking, oh, I think I could just do this on my own for these clients, for these I, potential clients? I wish I could say it was, but that was the time where I went, man, this job sucks. I didn't love my experience in the design industry. And I felt like if this was what interior design looked like, I didn't even want to be part of it. I was really seriously considering, this is about four years post-college, really seriously considering not staying in design. And at that time, I took a bit of a blip year and took a year off and traveled doing music, which was amazing. Not related to design, but just I needed a break. I needed a change of pace. And when I finished that, I you know, had new perspective from traveling and realized that I could do design in a way that felt more aligned with how I wanted to do things. So I wish I could say I launched full-time then, but I didn't. I went and I worked a corporate job for four years, sure. working as at a home decor and lighting retailer, working in-house. I did their social media, which I hated. I did copywriting, which I also hated. <laughs> but I finally got to where I wanted to be, which was photo styling, set design, display for catalog, for print. And that was it was pretty cool, except it was corporate. And so I was essentially, I wasn't the title of an art director, but essentially in the role of an art director, but there were 12 people above me who needed to make decisions and sign off on everything and too many cooks in the kitchen as it were. And so they would ask me to innovate and be creative and be ahead of trends. And I would design these sets and then they would all get reduced to sort of this very basic lowest common denominator you know, Ugh. the creativity would go and it would always end up being generic. And, you know, I'd been, I'd been thinking about going on my own, but didn't feel ready. And mm -hmm. I can pinpoint the exact moment I knew I was ready to go on my own. Oh, I, I know. This is kind of cool. Actually. I remember it like, clear as day. We were doing a photo shoot for a dining room and I had done this really cool eclectic mix of dining chairs around a big, beautiful table. It was a, a white loft setting I did these amazing flowers. I loved the mix of chairs. It was just like hip and eclectic and cool. And it was definitely the shoot I was the most proud of that I'd ever done. And the company's chief creative officer walked in and she had a very distinctive voice. 
And I remember her standing there. <laughs> what, making, what was that? I'm hoping. And I remember her standing there looking at my set and she just goes, I don't like it. And oh. I almost broke up laughing. <laughs> like, you have got to be freaking kidding me. This is the best work I've ever done and you don't like it. It's like, oh. I'm like, I'm ready to call the shots. I don't need seven yeah. higher ups who don't know design above me. Right. Telling me what to do anymore. And it was good. We were already transitioning out of that city and planning a move. But well, that even moment, if you don't like it, you've got to think, like, there's got to be a better way to have said that. Well, <laughs> there's a yeah. hundred different ways but, you could have said You know, it. four years of this, yeah. and it gets yeah. to the point where you're like, okay, you know what? Bye. I'm ready. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Bye, Felicia. I am ready to call the shots. I want to be on my own. And that moment has motivated me and kept me going because I feel like now, I couldn't go back to working for someone else. I, I am committed to making this work because I don't want those moments again where I've put my heart and soul, I've put my best forward and someone just comes in and says, I don't like it. Has that ever happened to you with a client? I have had clients that, you know, maybe an element or two of a design, they want change. You know, they don't love a certain coffee table I've picked and that's fine. I'm yep. always really nervous when I do a design presentation <laughs> that the reaction is going to be, I don't like it. I know. But it doesn't matter how many times you do it. There's always a little bit of anxiety. It's always your heart on your sleeve when you walk into a client totally. presentation, when you do design, because it is so personal and so true yeah. to who you are. But no, I've been really fortunate that I've shown up, I've done presentations and for the most part, I've knocked it out of the park, which yeah. is only confirming that I don't need to be working for someone else who doesn't totally. like it. Yeah. <laughs> but was that moment as clear for you, Kate, about going on your own after working for others? I would say it was more of an evolution. It wasn't this like moment in time that's as distinct as that story is. Um, I know that by the, the day that it sort of happened, at that point, I had already secretly been working on a website and business cards, and that was already in place and branding, like which was thinking about my pricing and, and all of the things that you think about when you start setting up your, your business. Um, so... My, I mean, I have questions about you before we get into me. <laughs> I want to, I have another question. So you realized in that moment, did you quit that day? Did you put in a two weeks notice? Did you have a plan? What was the very first thing you did to, to, already, to get the wheels in motion? Yeah. We already had a plan that we were moving across the country for my husband's academic career. And so I knew that job had a time limit, which made it a lot more bearable for the past few months. Yeah. But, you know, similar to what you did in terms of kind of secretly starting this little side thing, getting your ducks in a row, about six months before we left, before we moved, I did hire a business coach. I'd already had a web, website and blog established, but really worked to rebrand myself, to start doing design projects, to kind of get my feet wet. Mm -hmm. So I would work full time, had, you know, my son was really little at the time and I would come home and work at night working on friends' houses, living rooms, bedrooms, things that I could sort of handle on the side to get a taste for it and to sort of build up a little portfolio before I left. So the transition worked well. I didn't feel the need to rush out the door. And it also meant that I did have a full-time job to help with the income 
for those six months or so until we were officially moving. And I had to start on my own because I was not about to look for a job <laughs> when I got here. I was ready to, to make this happen. Do you mind if I ask how old you were? When I officially went on my own? You don't have to answer that. I don't know. I'm happy. To, I'm just, uh, I'm trying to do math. I'm like, I, <laughs> I'd have to do a little 31? Yeah. 30, 31? Yeah. I mean, it took me a decade out of school. I graduated when I was 21. So yeah, I was probably officially 31 when I went full-time on my own. And yeah. I wish I was one of those cool people that did it at 21 that just like had this rock and design firm right out of college. But I needed that experience, you know, positive and negative to help me grow and to give me the confidence in myself I needed to do it. For me too, I felt the same that there was a, a maturity level that, I mean, let's be honest, you guys know me. I'm, not you guys don't know me yet, but you're going to. Leslie knows me. <laughs> there's, a, there's a maturity that I think happens to, um, that allows you to be a better designer for your clients. Um, with, with age, but I like one of the girl, one of the girls that works for me is 21 and she's extraordinarily mature for her age. And I could see her running her own business at some point, but I know at 21, I didn't have what it took maturity wise to be an empathetic designer. Um, I think the world was still revolving around me at that point in my life. So, um, so yeah, I, the, so I was also one of those kids that was always, designing the spaces that I was in. We also moved a ton as a, as a child. I, I remember when I was 18 years old, I had moved more than 18 times in my life. Did you mind having new bedrooms? Because I never moved and I didn't leave that same bedroom until I was 18 and I was wow. dying for a change. Oh yeah. I bet. Um, I mean, it was bitter. It was, they were bittersweet moves <laughs> for yeah. sure. But my mom always treated it. My mom loved to design. My grandmother loved to design. Um, my mom used to go to her friend's house on the weekend and using whatever they had in their house, sort of re redesign it, mix it up, change it up and give it a fresh facelift with pretty much spending nothing. And she would take me along for those. And that was so much fun. And anytime we moved, she treated it as a new and exciting opportunity to fix it up again. And each new place had its own story. And that sort of took some of the, the bitterness away from that experience. So that was fun for me. Um, of course, by the time I was old enough to take care of myself and which I was living on my own by the time I was 17, I did not move again for a very long time. It's like, screw that, I'm done. And so, but I still enjoyed the, the act of designing for myself. And I went to college and I got my degree in interior design. In my senior year, I had my first job with a high-end residential interior design designer um, in Austin, Texas. And that was a wonderful experience. I learned a ton. Um, <laughs> working for a high-end interior designer when you're on a college budget is mind-blowing. Um, you know, when when she would ask me to source like a chair for a, a kid's room and she said, but it's for a kid's room. So we don't want to spend a, a ton of money on it. I'm like, what does that mean to you? And she'd be like something around under $600. And I'm like, my, my head spun. I mean, to me that I was like, that's my oh, rent. That's my rent. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to sort of adjust and learn the language of design and high end design very quickly. And there was also this experience of, 
of designing very custom pieces, not only in upholstery, but case goods too. So I, that experience was very, um, it, it, it felt good, like a very <laughs> luxurious job right out of college. But it was 2009, the economy was in the tank and her work started to go away. And at that point, she had to let me go because there wasn't enough work to justify having me around. So 2009, economy was in the tank. I lost my job. I had just graduated and I had no plan. So I moved to Denver where I spent the next 10 years. And my first job there was working um, for U.S. Screen Building Council, the Colorado chapter. And I did, I was their education coordinator. Um, and that got me by until the economy picked up and people were hiring again. And from there, I was hired at, Oz Architecture, which is in Denver, and they're a large um, architecture firm. Very, very different experience there than working in a boutique high-end residential firm. But I was hired because I, actually I was originally hired to be their uh, lead coordinator to help get all of these projects lead certified. Um, but then that <laughs> I, um, did not, I, that was a lot of paperwork. That was a lot of paperwork. That was all I did and I was miserable. Um, I found a position, I found a way to move into the interior design department and they interviewed me for that role and they asked me about my experience working in the high-end residential world and that really translated into their hospitality design group because of my experience with doing custom work. So my first projects were heavily in the hospitality world. And I did that for a few years, but I really, so I, but then I got pregnant <laughs> and that changed everything for me. Um, I loved working there. Um, but when I came back from maternity leave, I had a really hard time juggling the work-life balance of being a new mom and working for a very fast-paced, intense work environment. Nobody in my interior design department had kids. Um, and the higher-ups that did have children, they were grown. And I was like, I don't know how they did it. And so I really didn't have someone as a model, as a role model to be like, this is how you do it. <laughs> and so not only was I, I was sleep deprived, I was nursing um, and we co-slept and my baby was nursing all night long and I wasn't getting any sleep and I didn't realize how terrible the sleep deprivation was, but I would go to work and I would be a total zombie. And I had worked it out with my bosses that I would work 30 hours uh, instead of a full 40 hour work week um, for the first six months after I came back from maternity leave. But the problem was they continued to give me 40 hours worth of work <laughs> with 30 hours to do it in. And they were giving it to a zombie. I was a total, I, looking back on it now, I see how bad it was, but I, I couldn't see the forest for the trees at the time. Um, so that's when my wheels started to turn of why don't I just go do this on my own? But that, continued to happen for quite a while before I um, took the leap. And so 
that's when I started working on a website and my business cards and talking to friends and my husband about it. Um, but before that happened, I was headhunted by a small architecture firm. So Oz had over 150 employees at that point. And then this new one that found me and asked me to interview, I would have, I was the seventh employee. And the owner of that company had like at least four, maybe five kids, a gaggle of, of geese. And I thought to myself, well, why don't I go try this for a little while? They do super cool projects. Um, and maybe the culture there will be different and maybe this is what I need. And so that lasted about a month <laughs> and I realized it was the same thing. It was extraordinarily high, fast paced. I was working weekends. Um, and I just was like, there's gotta be a better way. Um, I also was really not in a great position physically and emotionally because I was, it was post baby syndrome. I was still facing the challenge of sleep. And so, um, I, I quit and started my own business the next day. I got, did all the paperwork and my husband and I took a really long walk and did some math and figured out, okay, what do I need to do? in work to be able to support our family the way I had been. And we decided like, I don't actually have to work that much <laughs> to, to be able to bring in as much as I was in the, the commercial architecture world. And so I actually, that first year worked less, much less um, than I had been at either of the other places and made more money. Um, so that's when I knew I was on to something. Um, so that's, that's how I got started. But for me, it was a personal quest to achieve work-life balance. I'm not saying I am killing it in that area today. <laughs> when, I, when I get busy, I certainly find myself... Um, sometimes I need to check in and just be like, are you really running your business the way that you set out to do it in the first place? So um, it's a... It's an ongoing challenge, but I'm getting better at it, I think, with time. So I've been doing this now for five years on my own. I relate it to how old my girl was because it was a around that time. So she'll be six soon. I love that's my, that's my story. When you started your first year, you worked less and made more. I am jealous of that. <laughs> like I worked so much more and I made so much less, but it was 100% worth it. I heard some quote about like, you know, freelancers or people who are self-employed would rather work a hundred hours for themselves than 40 hours for someone else. I'm botching that quote, but the idea is so true. Like we put our heart and soul you know, even when we're not working, we're still working. And I'm, I'm never not working. I'm never I not working. I completely agree with that. And I love that you were making money right off the bat because I, I struggled a little bit more early on, but you we lived, in, we lived in very different cities. And I was going to mention that you lived in a bigger city, a more urban area where not to say that it was easy, but I'm hoping it was easier to get clients with budgets who sort of aligned with your ethos and style. Whereas where Kate and I both live now, which is Waco, Texas, central Texas, we're two hours from Dallas and two hours from Austin. So we're close-ish to major cities, but we're not close enough that 
there's a lot of clients right here for us, I think. And I launched here in Waco. So we both had different starting experiences, but I love to hear that you were profitable and found success in that. For me, even though I was working more and making less, it was 100% worth it. I mean, just the, the satisfaction of being aligned with what I believed, how I wanted to do things, having the freedom. My son was a baby. He was about 18 months when we moved here. So he was quite little and it gave us the freedom to work from home, have him around. And yeah. I know both of us being moms with kids a similar age, I think that is a huge asset for both of us back then and now of having the courage to go on our own is building this life that supports who we are as people, as women, what kind of business we want and our families. Absolutely. And I shouldn't oversell it that I was just like out of the, out of the gate making money. Let, let me, let me clarify a little bit of that for you. Yes, I was in, a, in an urban environment, but when I say I was working less, what I mean was I wasn't working 40 hours a week. I was working about 30, but what it meant was that you, so when you work for a commercial design firm, you track your hours and your time that are billable to clients by the sixth minute. So every minute of my day had to be accounted for in that world. And when you, ha when you have a baby that in the first year or two years, they have an enormous amount of doctor business that they have to go to for, um, you know, vac vaccines or just checkups or, I mean, and I was trying to go to a, a breastfeeding group to get support there. And I literally couldn't do that during my work week. So I'd have to find time on my own time to do that. Or, or when I would take the time off to do it, I have to make it up somewhere or another. And so what it meant for me when I was on my own was really that I could go do those things and not bat an eyelash. It wasn't like a scramble to figure out how am I going to make this up somewhere else? I could just go do it. I could take a walk with my baby in the afternoon with, when I wanted. We had a nanny at the time. And so I was working from home and the nanny was there. So I could go upstairs, nurse, and go back to work and play with her for a minute. And then they would just do their thing during the day. So from the stand, I was working plenty. I was working a lot. And I did a lot of work at night, probably hours that I didn't account for. Um, working on my website, working on my branding language and, and all that jazz. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't sell it as it was just a breeze. I just was out of the game making money, but I did. I mean, I wasn't making bukus of money in, in an architecture firm. If anybody's worked for a large architecture firm um, and you're sort of an entry level designer, you know, you're probably not making a ton of money. Um, in fact, I remember distinctly that I had been hired at this architecture firm as their uh, green building consultant, their lead um, project manager um, at a higher pay scale than the interior designers got paid. Well, they didn't really pay attention to that when they hired me in the interior design department. So about a year later, they were scratching their head. They're like, wait a second, you make how much? <laughs> it's like, our, our designers who have been here for five years don't make that money. And I'm like, well, you're not going to give me a pay cut, all right, buddy? <laughs> so um, it, it, didn't, it didn't pay really well. So it wasn't hard to hit that threshold of making more and working less is, is what I'm giving up. Yeah, that makes sense. And I'm coming from 
corporate in the Los Angeles area where it was not amazing, but you know, enough money for our family to, to live on there on one income. So I'm almost there, almost earning that much again on my own after three years. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, what I have a list of a couple of things that I think if, if you're a listener and you are thinking to yourself of entering this field or going out on your own, or you've just done it. Um, I think there are a couple of things that, that we should talk about like what kind of questions you should ask yourself to find out if you're ready. And if, if this is the right time, um, and I'm sure Leslie has some things to add to this, but I would say, um, number one is to ask yourself, what's your motivation? Um, I had a lot of motivators for myself. Um, the primary one was a work-life balance. I really wanted to be there for my kids. I wanted to enjoy being with them. And I didn't want the stress of having to make up every minute of my time count. <laughs> so that was um, number one. But I also have always been sort of a helper type of personality. I, I like to find ways to help people. So in the corporate world of architecture, I, because I was considered sort of a junior designer, that wasn't necessarily my title, but that was the, you know, the mentality. I wasn't getting a lot of one-on-one -on -one interaction with our clients. Um, our clients were, um, you know, these hoteliers and, and big, we did a lot of multifamily housing as well. Um, and so my higher ups would be the ones meeting with them and interacting and getting all of the information and then coming back and downloading to us. And then I would just do the, the other thing. So I was sourcing, I was drawing, I was putting together presentations and doing all the work that I still do, but I didn't have any client interaction. And that just felt kind of boring to me. I was like, I want to go talk and listen and hear and interpret these things. Um, and so that was another motivator for me. And I would say the third one was that I felt like I could relate better to families um, than these big high-end, um, uh, sorry, um, hospitality worlds. It was based on where I had sort of grown up. That wasn't something that I had a whole lot of experience with. And so there was a disconnect for me with them. And my heart was more aligned with helping these families create a home that made them feel at ease and comfortable and that they loved and they were proud of and that worked and were functional. And that was something I could jam out on all day. So those are my three big motivators. But I think whether you're just starting out, I mean, I think you should always be asking yourself this, whether you're just starting out or whether you're thinking about starting is really ask yourself, what is your motivation um, and what's your why? How about you, Leslie? What was your motivation? You know, it's funny because design, like design itself was a motivator, but to me that almost isn't because it was so obvious to me that's what I would be doing. Like that's kind of a given. It, but, you know, the more I go to markets, source for clients, you know, see and touch all the things, it just reminds me of how much I love that world and that's what I want to be doing. So my motivators for doing interior design were it's just a love for it, but it's very different to be motivated to do design as it is to be motivated to run a design business. And for me, motivation to run my business was, you know, that moment working corporate where someone didn't like my work, that was awesome. 
was just realizing like, no, I'm ready to be the one to call the shots. I have a voice. I have a point of view. I have design opinions. I feel strongly about them. And I know there's people out there that are in line with me, that are my people that would think this is amazing. And I could use what I have been given and honed over the years, but definitely think a lot of this, most of this is innate God-given ability. I can use that to really connect with people, to help people, to help them make spaces they love. So yeah, one motivator wanting to call the shots. Yeah. Another There's nothing wrong with that. (laughs) No, I know. And it sounds so funny because, and this sort of ties into my second motivator is I did not used to stand up for myself. You know, the early jobs, boyfriends, all that kind of stuff when I was in my late teens and early to mid twenties, I never stood up for me. I sort of let things happen to me, happen around me and didn't always have the courage to speak my voice. And now, and I have to say, if I don't, you know, ages of people listening, I'm sure there's a range from early twenties to hopefully much more experienced than that. But my thirties are so much better than my twenties. I am, you know, I just feel so much more who I'm meant to be. And at this point, I do stand up for myself and what I believe in and what I want to do. And I want to see what I'm capable of. Like, I know people can have successful design businesses. I know people can do this. And now I'm, you know, instead of before it was like, oh, that's not for me. Now my motivation is why not me? What can I create? Why can't I be the one to run a successful multi-million dollar business? Why can't I be the one to influence people with design, whether that be through just private clients or books or speaking or products? I mean, this is just the tip of the iceberg where we're at now three years in. And I'm, I just want to see what crazy crap I'm capable of if I really commit to it. And the third motivator similar to you is family. I do have kids. I have a five-year-old and my daughter is 18 months. You know, they're little, they need a lot. They are in school and daycare and God bless those places because I (laughs) love to work and I love my kids, but I also love the time I have to do what lights me on fire during the day. But I want the flexibility to be done work at three o'clock to go pick up my kids from school. Like you mentioned earlier, wanting to take your daughter for a walk in the afternoon or dentist appointments or whatever it need, needs to be. I hated this on the clock mentality in corporate where it was nickel and diming, making up every second. And I understand that time has to be tracked and billable. 100% as an employee, right. you need to be accountable. But I want a life where... If I want to stop at two o'clock one day and go sit and read a book at a coffee shop because I just need to decompress, I can do that. And then if I want to, if I choose to, I can work at night after my kids go to bed. I don't make that a regular habit, but you know, the flexibility and freedom is a huge motivator to me. And it's funny because I always thought of myself as a kid as being this like strict rule follower and obeyer. Like I hate getting in trouble, trouble. I got a detention once and I cried my face off and I was so mortified that I had to do detention and it was for chewing gum. Like, come on people. Anyway, that's funny. I always thought of myself as this like very obedient rule follower and, you know, staying within the lines. And I realized even with that, it's not that I like following rules. I know how to play the game to get what I want and to 
look like I'm following the rules, but really <laughs> I have a very rebellious, strong streak in me that wants to do things my way. Yeah. And this business has been the best thing I ever did. And in moments, the worst thing I ever did. And I've never felt so amazing about myself and my abilities and my capabilities. And I've never felt worse about myself and my abilities and value. It is this ridiculous roller coaster ride, which is why you need to know what your motivation is to keep you going when you are on a heap in the floor because a client has humiliated you or you've misquoted something and you're on the oh. something that yeah, exactly girl you're on the hook to pay for something that you frankly can't afford because your lifestyle is not your wealthy client's lifestyle and those things are all worth it if your why if your motivation is strong enough to carry you through yeah I think it's important to differentiate the difference between calling the shots and being autonomous because this, in, this role is in no way autonomous. Um, you're, you are obligated to your clients. If you have staff, you're obligated to your staff. Um, and I, I think very early on had that misconception and I've since I very quickly actually recognized that, no, I'm still accountable. And I've, I've never had an issue with being accountable, but um, I felt like there was this autonomy of me just like working on my own and doing my own thing. But you have deadlines, you have commitments, you have budgets. Um, so if that's you still your, have a boss and your boss are your yeah. clients now instead of your boss boss. Yeah. So I, I would think really hard about what your, your reasons are. Um, but if, if autonomy is one of them, you, it might not be the, the thing for you. No, that makes sense. This is something where you have to enjoy this weird combination of flexibility and accountability at the same time. Yes. So one of the, my favorite clauses in my contract is, um, I don't have it memorized, but it's in there. And, it just says like when you're hiring us, you're hiring a boutique design studio and we are parents and we have children and we are bound to the laws of mothering. And I currently have a baby inside that's been sick and throwing up for three days. Um, she's with her dad today while we're doing this recording, but, um, I've, I have the flexibility with my clients if I need to, to come back to them and say, um, you know, we may need to push this date back a little bit if I can't get caught up. I've, I've only had to do that once in my career is change a deadline. I've always been able to work through it, but I put it in my contract that gives me that flexibility that they, they must know when they are hiring us that we are humans. <laughs> um, we have small children that we have school closures sometimes and we plan for those the best that we can, but there are some things that we can't plan for. Um, and most people understand that, but um, being in this role has given me the ability and you too to, when you say call the shots, you're telling your clients how you run your business and they can choose to work with you in that capacity or not. If not, then there's another designer for them. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I, I would hope that most independent designers that are of this size, you know, 
make establish that early on with their clients in a, in a formal way in their, their contract or whatever. So, um, I think the other thing you have to ask yourself is, are you a self starter? Um, are you the type of person who, when you have an idea, even if you don't see it to fruition, do you at least explore more? Do you have a natural curiosity to dig in and investigate things um, on your own? Um, because if you find yourself always getting distracted or doing other things, or there's something more appealing for you to do than actually doing the work, <laughs> um, you're going to be in trouble really fast. You have to be self-motivated and a self-starter. Um, obviously getting a paycheck from a client to get started is a real motivator. Um, but there's, there's no denying that it has to come from within first. Would you agree? Absolutely. I think, and in addition to that, not only being self-motivated to start, but being willing to be uncomfortable, being willing to do the hard things that need to happen. Because girl, it is easy to have a checklist of fun things to do. I'm going to update my website. I'm going to make new business cards. And I, I do the same thing and it feels good. And then you can check it off your list. And of course it is improving things behind the scenes, but you've also got to be willing to pick up the phone and call potential clients to follow up. You have to be willing to show up at networking events and meet people and build relationships. And I am a straight up introvert. That stuff drains me. I find it really difficult. It doesn't mean I don't do it. It means that (laughs) I do it even when it's uncomfortable. You do it really well, yeah. Thank you. And for those of you that don't know Leslie yet, she straight up is always going to events and talking and meeting with people. And I know she's an introvert. You would never be able to tell. I know that you make time to, to rejuvenate, but I am very happy staying in my house and finding ways to connect with people otherwise. And it's not ideal. And I, it's a, it's a something that I struggle with and have to be better at, but you, you do it beautifully. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you guys do a word of the year to kind of, you know, guide your year, maybe instead of a resolution or in addition to, but my word of the year, I think it was two years ago now was discomfort, which hashtag, I really regret choosing that because that whole year was super uncomfortable and I kept facing situations. Was was that the year that Sheryl Sandberg came out with lean in? (laughs) It might have, I don't remember. It very well could have been. But it was, I was at a place and I was at a point where I knew that to get where I wanted to go, I had to be willing to sit with discomfort, to feel uncomfortable doing things. And I'm telling you guys, discomfort is a physical sensation in my chest. It's like a tightness. It's like right in between like my, my ribs, my rib cage. I mean, even just thinking about it, I can like activate the feeling. And it, I mean, it's a yucky, awful feeling. But if you are willing to feel feelings, they will pass. And if you are willing to do the hard things, you can make this happen. What is it? Can I ask you, I I have plenty of examples. I'd be willing to go first, but since you're talking about it, do you have an example of a, of a, of an uncomfortable situation that you've had to go through in your experience as a designer? Uh, For me, it's picking up the gosh darn phone. I don't know why I would, I hate, I even hate texting. I would much rather text or email 
the idea of picking up the phone and calling someone, especially when it's either an unsolicited call, meaning they're not expecting my call, but I'm wanting to reach out to them for some reason, or it's to handle a problem. There's so many times where I'm like, I'll just shoot them an email to let them know the price of their fridge doubled from our proposal. But you can't, you can't do that by email. You have to pick up the phone. You have to connect. You have to do hard things. And maybe for some people, picking up the phone is no big deal. But for you, it's publishing your latest work on Instagram. It's being visible to an audience. Maybe it is picking up the phone because I think a lot of us struggle with that. Or even, you know, hard things, putting yourself out there, being vulnerable with your work, with your design selections, with your point of view is, I mean, it's hard. I've been doing this for years and I do presentations over and over. And every time I walk into a client's home and I have a presentation, I mean, it feels like here is my heart. You're going to judge it. What do you think of me as a human being? Like, and I know it's not that it's my work (laughs) is not me, but that's how personal it feels to me and how vulnerable it feels. But doing those hard things means it does get easier and you, you build those muscles and you get stronger and you become more resilient but you have to be willing to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I actually learned very early on the value of picking up the phone and I don't struggle with it, but I I know when it's time to pick up the phone um, and when it's an email wouldn't be the right way to communicate. So picking up the phone is super important um, and it's not easy, but I think anytime you're working for a client and you bump into a significant issue, that's going to cause significant time delays or it changes the budget, um, you need to pick up the phone. In fact, I have a phone call that I have to make today. Um, We were checking on uh, the status of some orders yesterday. We had a lot of things out to be ordered and just checking in on where everything was. And one of them we noticed, why hasn't this shipped yet? I don't understand. So we gave them vendor, we gave the vendor a call and it, there were bar stools and we are ordering six of them and the company only has one in stock. The rest of the freight shipment is for the other five won't be here until June of this recording. It's February 1st. Um, and so that's why they hadn't notified us that it was out of stock because they had one in stock. And so it didn't recognize their system didn't recognize that they needed to alert us. Um, Anyway, so I have to call the client and tell them that this is the case and ask them, do they want us to reselect or do they want to wait? And unfortunately, knowing sort of this client's budget and where things have gone, my feeling is um, he's going to be like, let's just cancel it. I'll figure something else out, (laughs) which is a real bummer because I'm not going to make any commission on that sale. Um, And I mean, that's a good little chunk of money there that I can just say goodbye to. Um, so that's a tough call yeah. <laughs> that I have to make, but you, you do these things all the time. So yeah, if you're not a self-starter, picking up that phone call may be uh, something that can ruin your, your reputation and your, your accountability as a, as a designer and your name. So um, if you hold a lot of value to keeping a good reputation and a good image, which you should, um, then you've got to be able to do those sort of things. 
Um, and your clients will appreciate it every, hands down every time. And also I've made so many calls. Leslie knows this. I have worked myself up. I've called her and been like, this is the situation that I'm dealing with. What would you do? And you know, she recognizes that it's a, it's a tricky one. Um, she's experienced similar things. You know, we sort of walk, talk things out. We, we do this with each other all the time. And then I make the phone call and it goes so much smoother than I anticipated. And that happens a lot too. So um, it's not always bad, but um, yeah, be a self-starter. Yeah. Um, what else would you tell people to ask themselves? I mean, I know a question not to jump in too soon, but I think you and I talked about this before is a lot of people feel like, or ask the question, do I need a degree in interior design? Yeah. And that is going to be episode two and we'll dive deeper into that. <laughs> yeah. So it's funny that we're going to tackle this topic because both of us are coming from a perspective where we both have design degrees. We knew this is what we wanted to do. We both went to college. We have a piece of paper behind us. Whoop-de-doo. Uh, long story short, the answer is no, I don't think you need a degree to do what we're doing, especially in residential. I completely understand when you start to get into corporate healthcare, things where, you know, people's safety and livelihood are at stake with your design work, there absolutely is some justification for certifications, for degrees, for things like that. But guys, like I'm picking a sofa. Everybody calm down. No one's going to die. Like you can make this work without a piece of paper behind your name. All right, you guys, this is what is going to make this podcast so unique and different and interesting from the other design podcasts that are out there because I 100% think you need a degree to be an interior designer. Um, I, I do the same about that. No, I do. Be I know, but let's let's save that conversation for okay. our next recording. It's it's debatable, and honestly, if I if I'm being real, if I'm being 100 percent real, I think if you ask me on a different day the same question, you might get a different answer. Um, but oh, maybe let's change that answer to 99. percent Okay. We'll but talk anyway. about this in more depth next time. So really, <laughs> we don't have an answer to that question today, but we would love to hear from you on Facebook or on Instagram if you do have a design degree or don't, or how that has affected what you are doing or how you feel about what you're doing. So we'll dive more into that next time. But in the meantime, if you want to drop us a comment, we're on Instagram at Designers Getting Coffee and on Facebook as well. I'm curious to hear your perspective on that because clearly Kate and I have different points of view on this question. Well, we've had, we've had this conversation before and I, I think what you said is more what I said, more in line with like what I said. I said, it, okay, well, let's just save it because <laughs> it, it's, it's literally its own podcast and that's what yeah. we're talking about next. So, okay, let's, so let's say you've asked yourself some big important questions. I think money is a big one. You need to figure out you know, from a financial standpoint, what do you need to make and to earn to be able to support you and your family and your lifestyle, whatever the case may be. Obviously, everyone's situation is unique and only you can really answer that. But um, I think for me, the way I worked that out was I, I knew what our current uh, income was between myself and my husband and what my contribution to that was and kind of where we were in, in our lifestyle at that point in time. And I needed to be able to make the same amount or more. And so I worked, I did the math backwards. So I said, okay, here's the number. And I worked back. How does that break down into each month? What do I need to make? And if I'm charging X dollars, how many 
billable hours do I need to be able to target each month? Now we did have some savings to work from because I certainly didn't make that mark the first probably three months. Um, and so we were in a position where we had saved a little bit. Um, we were saving it for something else, <laughs> but um, our priorities changed and um, I feel very grateful that I, I had that opportunity. Um, but, you know, if that's not the case for you, I would say give yourself at least three months of savings to, if not more, to live on so that you can really establish yourself um, in the right ways without scrambling for, for work. I think being motivated is helpful. And there's times where, you know, a lack of income can certainly be motivating for you to do the hard things to keep going. For me, I found it more harmful than helpful when finances were tight because I felt like I was working out of a place of desperation mm -hmm. instead of a place of service where it was more about, I need to sell a design package. I need to sell a sofa with a, you know, a nice margin on it to pay my bills. And it wasn't, how can I make the best choices? Not that I was making bad choices, but you know, just internally, I knew I wasn't coming from a place of service and connecting and being my best designer self. There is definitely a fear and a scarcity when you're not making the money that you expect to or you need to. And I'm with Kate that having savings is an important part of being ready to start your own design business, knowing that there is some money to cushion you for three months at the minimum. Otherwise, I mean, you're not going to get clients right out the gate. You're not, well, you might and good for you, but you're not going to get enough to keep things sustained. I think it does take time you don't want to be that flash in the pan, but to really build up a business with systems, with processes, with the right, all the right stuff in place, it does take some time. Yeah, 100%. I think that's a good point that if, if you've got the savings and the financial security to be able to start your business knowing that it's, and this is with any business, this isn't just design, you know, that you're going to be able to make a living, then you will be making decisions from the right place versus scarcity and desperation. Absolutely. Um, all right. So let's say you've asked yourself all these big questions and you feel ready. What's the first thing you do? For me, yeah. it was hiring a business coach. Yeah. Before you make a website, I had a website already, but that wasn't how I started. Before you pick a logo or your fonts and all the stuff that we love to do because it feels really good to get it done. <laughs> find a mentor, find a coach, whether it is a private one-on-one -on -one coach, whether it's a Facebook community or whether it's reading books by business owners and designers that you respect and admire. Or listening to podcasts. Or listening to podcasts, <laughs> which BTW is some of the best design education out there right now in terms of the business side of things. I have learned so much in the past couple of years listening to podcasts as well as seeking one-on-one -on -one coaching and mentorship and things like that. I think before you make any decisions, bounce your ideas off someone who can guide you, who has come before you and who can set you off in the right direction. 
What about you, girl? I was going to say the exact same thing, but um, a mentor um, is, a, is a wonderful idea. Somebody that is in interior design and has experience is invaluable. Somebody that you can really, when you have, you're, you're going to have unique situation. They're not unique. They happen to this industry all the time, but you're going to have crappy situations that come up and you're going to need someone that you can pick up the phone call, pick up the phone with and say, help, help me figure this one out. Cause it's a tricky one. Yeah. Um, for me, it was, it was a woman. Um, her name's Annette Stelmack. She's, she's an amazing woman. She's been my mentor for years. Um, she had been doing interior design both in the commercial realm and residential realm for probably 30, 40 years before um, I've, you know, when I had asked her, so she had a ton of experience. She also had been a mom. She also, you know, she ran her own residential business. So she was invaluable to me in my first couple of years. Um, there weren't a ton of podcasts, I feel like, five years ago in this world. Um, there's plenty now, and we certainly listen to them and love them. We now feel like we have our own voice that we can add to the mix. Um, it wasn't until probably my second year, first or second year, I don't remember, I hired a sales coach because all of a sudden I had gone from interior designer to interior designer, saleswoman, bookkeeper, um, social media, website developer, <laughs> wearing all these hats. And one area that I knew I didn't have any experience in was sales. So how do I sell someone my services um, in a way that feels authentic to me? And so at that point, I'd hired Kendrick Shope. She's great. Um, I recommend her as an option. Um, but that was my first... Um, dive into hired sort of mentoring um, and then later um, working with another interior design business coach specifically which I think is now is a, probably a fine time to share that Leslie and I at one point were sharing the same business coach she had been working with um, Nancy um, Zanzikoffer. Nancy Zanzikoffer. <laughs> yeah she her. she we love her um, but Leslie had been working with her. I had just transitioned to Texas from Denver and was having some growing pains with, you know, figuring out a whole new market and rebranding myself because I changed my business name. And so I worked with her for a little while and that was awesome. So you're net, I don't think you ever grow out of needing a business coach or a mentor. That's somebody that's going to stick with you. But the sooner the better, if you can just start off with somebody in your corner that you can have one-on-one -on -one conversations with it, with, even if it's paid, it is, if it's a, if it's a, established and reliable coach or mentor, whoever the case may be, paying for that is going to serve you well. Would you agree? Absolutely. It was a big investment for me to hire my first coach. I mean, like this was digging into savings. Let's, yeah. let's put our money where our mouth is and, and commit to this. And it was absolutely worth it. And I will mention I do think it's important to always have a coach, a mentor, a somebody, but it's also okay that you could outgrow a coach, a person after you hit a certain level, after a certain season. And so if you have started working with someone or have been influenced by someone and maybe feel like it's not the right fit anymore, or it's time to move on, it could be. And there's lots of other people out there that are a step ahead of you that can offer you guidance. But I think that real talk coming from someone who has been there, who
who knows their area of expertise, whether it is interior design, whether it is sales, it's all going to help strengthen you as a designer, as a business owner, and hopefully help you avoid some pitfalls and mistakes. Not that I've ever made any in my business. I have, but a coach has certainly helped me with things that I could have learned the hard way. I'm glad I didn't have to because I had people to bounce ideas and questions off of right from day one. Yeah, I, honestly, if I had it to do over again, as great as the sales coach was for me, and there are things that I learned with her that I continue to implement today in my business, um, I wish I had had a paid coach earlier on in my career because I, I think I did make some missteps that I could have avoided um, had I had somebody with that area of expertise sort of helping me out. So, um Okay, so we talked about mentor or coach, um, Facebook groups, podcasts, books, those sort of things um, are all um, great. I, I think also as far as getting experience, if you haven't quite jumped ship yet and you're doing it full-time or at least part-time, I think if you don't have any of your own projects under your belt, one of the best ways that you can start to gain experience is to start asking your friends and family to do some work for them. Um, we could probably talk about whether that should be paid or not paid, um, but I think that if you can find someone that will allow, give you a budget, their money obviously, um, and allow you to make some, you know, pick one, one space and just give it a makeover, whatever that project looks like for you, doing that as soon as you can, um, so that you have some content and you have something to build off of is critical. Um, there might be some other ways that you can get the same idea across, whether it's, you know, photographing your own space, your own home and sharing that with people, which we've both done. Mm -hmm. um, Leslie, what else would you recommend as, as far as ways to get experience and start to tell your own story and share your own vision and have your point of view? How else can people, what are some other ways that people can do that? You mentioned using your own home, and that's absolutely what I was about to say. The cool thing is you don't have to shoot a wide shot of your living room. I get that a lot of designers starting out, their own homes probably are not the look or the level of the client they want to be serving. Don't feel like you need to feature your whole home or even an entire room if it doesn't fully reflect who you are as a designer and the kind of client you want to be working with, but a beautifully styled bookshelf or a coffee table moment or, you know, a beautiful tray and some flowers on a kitchen counter, detail shots that convey feeling and environment and a vibe can carry you a long way. until you have quote real portfolio shots under your belt. But I second what Kate's saying about trying to do work, whether it is free or paid, we can tackle that in a future episode, what that looks like. But do work for friends or family. Have new spaces to shoot. And I have also done self-directed projects. You know, source, pretend you, pretend you have a room. Source all the items. Create the mood boards. Do the floor plans. Have great content that you can share and show, show that you can do the work. It won't get to a finished space. But people love mood boards. People love seeing floor plans. People love seeing 
what that process looks like. So to even create beautiful content like that will not only give you website content, social media content to sort of give people a taste of what you're about, it's also going to sharpen your skills as a designer as you're just practicing what vendors do I go to? What style do I like? What proportions? What colors? What is going to be my style as a design firm? I love that. That's a great idea. I'm like, why didn't I think of that? Because <laughs> I, I mean, I can whip out a mood board and a space plan in no time. But um, oh, yeah, I had projects I, in my portfolio for years that were like, you know, Austin living room. There's no Austin living room. That's me in Waco making something up. And it's not that you're being deceitful or dishonest. I designed it not, with an not Austin client in mind. Right. But it's okay that you're not doing things for real clients yet. In the graphic design world, people do spec projects all the time where they take a major company's logo and rebrand it or you know, do a self-directed project to build their experience and portfolio. And it's no different with what we do. Yeah, no, you're, I think that's a, a really smart idea um, too. Um, do you think that if this is something that our listeners are shooting for, they're, they're wanting to go out on their own and somebody that they know comes to them and says, I'll be your guinea pig, but I'm not going to pay you. What, what do you think? Would you tell the listeners to stand firm and, and ask for something? Or I, not? I cannot believe the number of designers I've encountered who that's their story. They weren't even trying to start a design firm. And some friend was like, I love your style. Will you help me do this? That's true. I, uh, I struggle with answering that as if there is a right and a wrong answer. Yeah. I think doing one, not all, not many, one project pro bono to build a portfolio to get experience if you can afford it. And if you, you know, if you have the means to do that without sacrificing paying your rent, I do think there's something to be said for being generous for gaining experience. However, it's a fine line between thoughtfully donating your expertise and getting taken advantage of and giving away everything you know for free. Bingo. Okay. So I want to jam on that for a second because I, I'm sort of answering this. I'm struggling with this question myself in the moment. My, 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 my gut wants to say, hell no. <laughs> but then I also realized there could be some value in it. If, you know, depending on your level of experience, I mean, I came at it with, you know, I'd already had five years of experience in the design world. Um, so I didn't, I wasn't in that position. I, I was, I felt confident in asking upfront um, for, for paid services, yeah. but I could see not having that experience it being worthwhile to get your feet wet, to give you the experience. Um, but I would do two things. I would, I would caution you to leave the project open ended and not clearly define your deliverables. So you're, from the outset, if you're going to do a project like that with someone, I would say, okay, here's what this would include. This is going to include, we'll just say, for example, a mood board, a furniture plan, selections for ABC, be very specific about what it is that you would be sourcing for them, um, come up with a budget together, and what that would look like for your client, um, you know, and then a design presentation and, and leave it at that. And then if you want, if they want you to go through with sourcing and all of that, you know, if they want you to actually buy the items and those sort of things, figure that out with them and what you're comfortable with legally, how much accountability do you want at that stage? Um, but be very specific in what the deliverables are 
and the timeline because the last thing you want is somebody that is going to come to you an open-ended project that never ends it snowballs five years later they're coming to you asking you for design advice for you know on the different room um so that way you can keep it really um clear for both of you what it includes and anything outside of that and i would also even consider saying to the client, I'd like to do this. Um, we'll both be getting something out of it. But at the end, I will ask you if you feel like um, you would like to contribute sort of, I don't know if tip or gratuity is the right word, but um, any sort of compensation, I won't leave it open-ended. That you can leave open-ended and say whatever you feel it was worth to you, you know, I would, I would accept that. I, you would have to frame it in the right way and decide if that was within your lane of your comfort level. But um, and it would depend on who the, I mean, if you're doing it for your mom, maybe not. <laughs> so um, that could be another way to, to explore that option. I, I'll give you an example. Well, this is actually, I'm going to save this story for later because it's, it's talking about being boutique and how you can stand out um, as an interior designer. So I'll table that. Yeah. Jumping back onto this topic about, do you do a free project to start? I'm just sort of racking my brain to see what I did and looking back, I never did a project for free, but I didn't charge a lot because, you know, you can't start out the gate at $250 an hour and feel confident in that. Like you don't know what you're doing. You got to figure it out. However, I do think it's important for your client, even if it's sort of a friend as a favor, they have to have some skin in the game. I think it helps when, you know, if you're just doing it for free, they're not invested they're wishy-washy. I mean, I've found when I give away services, and I mean giveaway in terms of like hosting a giveaway now, I'll give away a consultation or something. And those people are not in it to win it. They, there's less investment, both financially and mentally, emotionally. I think even for a small design fee, having that, A, gives you the courage to start charging and valuing your design services, but B, the client is more invested if they have put a little bit of money where their mouth is. And I mean, I used to do graphic design freelance before I started interior design. And I look back and the first logo I did, I charged, I think it was either 75 or a hundred dollars. Like, come on guys, that's ridiculous. But it was something and it made me legit as a freelancer. And it, you know, held the client accountable because they had invested some money. So the rate, the amount, is up to you and we can touch more on pricing and how, what that looks like in a future episode, but think carefully before you decide, decide to do a project for 100% free, because I do think even a small fee helps both sides of the table respect you as a designer more. I think, I think it establishes your credibility 100%. Yeah. Um, now my, now I just was thinking back to my first paid project and it was, it was a unique situation. It was a very good friend of mine, still a very good friend of mine. Um, but her, a family member had gifted them interior design services, um, because they had just bought a new home. And so in that situation, I got a flat fee and it was what I asked for at the time. Um, and I went way over on hours, but that is to be expected at that stage. You don't really know what you're doing. Um, but the, the client, my friend, she and I ultimately had to have a heart to heart because I poured myself into this presentation and delivering them the things that we had talked about. 
And then there was no execution on their end at all, like none. <laughs> so that was kind of, um, even after like multiple revisions. <laughs> um, so I think from that situation, there wasn't skin in the game for them. And so we, the heart to heart happened when two weeks before Christmas, um, she came back and was like, can you buy this thing for me cheaper using your design resources? And I was like, girl, <laughs> nope. <laughs> I love you, but no. Yeah. So, but once I explained it to her and how I, you know, felt like she had just sort of, that happens though. People just don't do anything, but then they're like coming back. It was the open ended sort of like never ending thing. And then I had that one little payment that would have long been shot. Um, is my reason for saying, have a very specific plan. <laughs> this is opening up so many future episode topics <laughs> that I'm really excited about. Yeah. But as we start to wrap up, Kate, why don't you recap the list of the three questions that we think it's really important as a new designer who is potentially going out on his or her own, what are three things you need to ask yourself and really put some heart and mind thought into before you make the leap? Absolutely. Okay. Number one, what is your motivation? Why are you doing it? What's your why? Um, and keep that front and center and ask it often. So you're going to ask it to yourself a lot during your first year, two or three years, but be sure to check back in every year. We tend to do that at the, at the end of the year or the beginning of the year, um, just to make sure that our motivations are aligned with, with the, you know, doing it for the right reasons. Um, Number two, asking yourself, are you a self-starter? Um, and feeling confident that you are a self-starter. Um, if you're not, if you don't feel like a self-starter, that's not to say you shouldn't get into this business, but I think you should really do some work in that area and thinking about um, practicing that in, in other areas to give yourself that, build that muscle. Um, and then third is, how are you gonna fund this venture? It's just like starting any business. Um, have a plan. Um, Leslie and I agree that the minimum would be three months of being able to, to take care of you, your family, you and your obligations. Um, if you can do more, great. Um, and, and there are real startup costs with starting a business. You think all I need is a computer. Um, I mean, we could, that could be its own episode. Like, that is bloody, its own episode. It, is, it, is, it sure is. I remember that one. So what are the minimum things that you need to, to get started? Um, and do you have the resources to, to fund this so that you can make decisions from the right place and not from a place of desperation yeah. um, or scarcity? And then Leslie, so what would be the recap over time, the, the minimum things or the first things you would do to get started? Find a mentor or coach, whether that is one-on-one, -on -one, someone you hire, whether that's you know, if your budget doesn't allow, even if it is just finding a great podcast or online course, Facebook community, somewhere you can bounce ideas off of someone who is ahead of you. And they don't have to be a million light years ahead of you. They just have to be a couple steps ahead to be able to guide you as you get started. True. Joining groups, Facebook groups are great. Yeah, for, they, for community and to ask questions. The mindset has really shifted since I started in design in 2005. And 
it very much used to be individual, well, not individuality, independence, people guarding their secrets, keeping to themselves, not talking about rates or problems or the behind the scenes stuff. Guys, can I just say that in the first like 20 minutes of me and Leslie meeting for the first time at a coffee shop, she straight up asked me what my hourly rate was and it just rolled right off my tongue. I didn't have a need. I didn't feel a need to, to keep that in, but it's, <laughs> and remember we're working in the same town. I mean, technically we're competitors, small we're town designers with a similar ish style, different enough, I think to keep yeah. us, you know, but I mean, straight up on paper, we're competition. Yeah, but totally. Not. There's plenty to go around and <laughs> this mindset shift that I love seeing. And it's, thankfully prevalent in person with people like Kate and also in these online communities, there are so many designers who are just willing to be vulnerable, to share, to share their rates, to share their process. And that makes us all stronger as an industry and as individual designers when we can, we can know it's okay to charge X as your hourly rate. You know, that's not crazy, but it's also okay to charge Y if that doesn't feel right for you. But just being able to connect with people, teachers, leaders, mentors, other designers who can help guide you is like, it's just amazeballs. It's the best thing you can do to get started is to find community and mentoring. Are we going to hear amazeballs a lot on this podcast? We that is, might that is, hear amazeballs. That is, not, that is not in my vocabulary, but it well, might. Before this it is, is in mine, ladies and gentlemen. Very, this has been an amazeballs um, first episode. Yeah. Hey, we forgot to mention one last thing of getting started and that's to, to start taking some photos and getting some project work under your belt by asking a friend or family member um, or even doing it to your own house um, or making up a pretend client and doing it that way. But find a way to create some content that you can start to share um, so that you can stand, stand in your space. Um, don't be shy. Tell people what you're doing. Um, tell people who you are and why you're doing it and create, create your Instagram account, create your Facebook account. Um, and just own it. Boom. That's how you do it. Drop the mic. <laughs> I said it. I said it. I'm so glad we had an amazing balls and a mic drop in episode. <laughs> oh, we're going to let our inner dork shine real good. <laughs> Welcome to designers getting coffee. <laughs> All right. So, um, before we head out, I think we just decided today that we're also going to be sharing these episodes on YouTube. Um, I hope, I hope, I think we'll be able to confirm that maybe on the next episode, but if I you think wanna, we can confirm it if we, <laughs> pretty solid on camera. I, I think so too. Um, so if you want to see the completely unfiltered, unedited, um, version of this, um, in, in FaceTime, um, we'll, we'll be creating that soon. So, uh, yeah, there. anything else? Let's do this. See you guys on episode two. Peace. Hey, designer. Thanks for sharing part of your day with us. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes so we can continue to connect with badass design bosses like you. For more coffee and to join the conversation, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Designers Getting Coffee.